You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by SolarAy Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and Wattwatches, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach, ITK analyst and Renew Economy contributor. David, how are you? Well, thanks, Giles. Uh, winter's arrived, or at least autumn down here in Sydney, finally, about a couple of months too late. And so it's a nice night to be doing a podcast and welcome to our special guest this evening. Yes, indeed. Um, look, um, I'd like to welcome, introduce uh, Matt Grantham. Um, Matt is an energy analyst who contributes to Beyond Zero Emissions and also to Renew Economy's website. And he's come to joining us to talk to uh, a little bit about blockchain and some of the studies and analysis he's done. Matt, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here, Giles. Look, first off, David, I just wanted to go through um, some of the news of the week. And um, well, first of all, tell me about Western New South Wales. You got there and back safely. And um, did you come across any solar farms? Uh, I came across, went, drove past one wind farm somewhere, uh, somewhere out west. Uh, don't ask me where. It's all uh, a bit vague. It was a, already more than one day ago. It's very dry in those parts uh, out there, is what I can say, Giles. Yeah, no, that's um, one thing I saw on the news the other day, actually, about the droughts. Um, look, let's get to the news. Um, look, Liddell is in the news again for a bunch of different reasons. I guess with mainstream newspapers, it's about the Alinta bid for the uh, Liddell coal-fired generator. And David, I'd be very interested in getting your opinion about what that means and how serious it might be. But I do want to point out to listeners a couple of other things that came up. One is your analysis, David, about um, its decision to invest in gas plants and the sort of gas plants it's decided to, these reciprocating engines and, and what that might mean. Essentially, you're arguing that it's actually assuming an environment where there's actually more renewables, not less. And the other thing is the reliability panel, um, which came out today and produced this modelling, which was really, really quite interesting. It was done by the um, by EY and um, looking at the reliability issues in Australia, and it basically found there was no reliability issues. And indeed, even in New South Wales from 2020 to 2024, the time when the deal closes, the risk of unserved energy, i.e. not enough power in the grid, was 0.00. Nor, nor, 1%, which is about one millionth um, Neglid- of percent. Uh, you could almost say, to make an extremely bad pun, it was negligible. Boom dish. Yes, so um, that was very interesting. So despite all the sort of fear and loathing, I mean, we've had a whole policy put in place, apparently, because of reliability problems and snowy hydro and this jaw boning of Liddell, all because of the reliability problems. So um, that was an interesting contrast. Um, David, what do you make of the Alinta um, offer of $250 million? I mean, it's a bit of a joke, isn't it? It's the pantomime continues, uh, is what I would say. That's not a $250 million. That's just the cash that AGL would get. Uh, it's really a billion dollars. Just just ask uh, Jeff Dimery from Alinta. Uh, and that's because that's the way uh, our good friends at The Australian reported it. Uh, <laughs> But presuming that's, that's assuming some sort of debt and assuming um, rehabilitation costs and things like that, which would be considerable. What, what uh, uh, Jeff and Alinta are very kindly offering to do 
is to uh, put some capital expenditure in Liddell Liddell and pay some part of the remediation costs, how they work out what Liddell's share of the joint remediation costs between Liddell and Bayswater is, I have no idea, probably on the basis of their respective outputs, which I doubt is a necessarily a good basis. And, and in any case, it's an arbitrary basis. But look, uh, in the end, I very much doubt that uh, AGL is going to accept the offer. Um, I think it's all a pantomime being played out for the uh, benefit of readers of The Australian. Well, there you go. Um, Matt, just quickly over to you. Um, your work with Beyond Zero Emissions, I mean, that assumes, you know, that's it's, it's one of his major pieces of work was 100% renewables by 2030. And of course, that assumes most of the coal-fired plants closing down at some stage, if not sooner, if not um, later. Um, it's an awful lot of trouble we're going through just for one very aging and not very reliable coal plant. What hope do you have in the future of more being closed without this kerfuffle? Oh, look, I mean, the thing that, that to, to look at, and I mean, I think I wrote an article, it was probably 12 or 18 months ago talking about this stuff, uh, Giles. You know, the, the problem that these big companies have got is, you know, how they manage capital allocation with such policy uncertainty. Um, and it's, you know, the issues around how they manage their assets and their fleets as they, you know, move to a lower carbon environment is something that, you know, is getting harder for shareholders. Uh, you know, it, it, it's as hard now as it was when I wrote those articles 12 months ago. Mm, indeed, indeed. Look, on the positive side, there's um, a bit of action happening with the solar plants. We've been talking a lot about the various commitments to solar that have been announced over the last 12 to 18 months. And now we're just starting to see them come online. So um, today we wrote a story about the Griffith and uh, Park solar farms, which um, have been fully commissioned and are fully operating um, over the last few weeks. And we just sort of picked this up um, late last week. There's a small solar farm in South Australia, which has just started generating another one in Queensland. And even the Sun Metal solar farm, which is the one being put in by the zinc refiner up there, um, has also announced that it's going to be um, commissioning within the next two weeks and the Clare Solar Farm is also starting to ramp up and many will follow. So that's going to be very interesting and um, good news. Hey David, I'd just like to pick up on you um, if you've got no other comment on the solar farms. Um, there is something though, you, you're writing a piece um, or a piece is published today on the Renew Economy um, that you've written about the importance of the state-based targets. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, so what we see is that if, if Queensland is to actually gets to uh, its 50% target, and uh, of course they've got a new energy minister and they were full of grand announcements in Queensland ahead of the election and absolutely nothing after the election. Uh, um, but uh, assuming they get to their 50% target and assuming that Victoria gets to its 40% by 2025 target, uh, the combined amount of, uh, that's renewable energy. And we have to be very careful to distinguish between renewable energy and carbon reduction because the two are not identical. You assume that renewable energy is, is carbon free and then you have to work out what it's going to displace in the system to actually then work out the change in carbon intensity. And we, we don't actually know for the NEG exactly what the carbon intensity is going to be within the NEM, um, especially after we allow for the uh, exempt energy. But I estimate it will be about 0.8 uh, uh, tonnes of carbon uh, per megawatt hour. But anyway, if we get to these state-based targets, the, the long and the short of it is, I think we'll get something like a 40% a reduction uh, from 2005 levels of emissions rather than the 28% that the 
uh, NEG is setting as a target. So in that sense, all the activists out there in the policy space uh, need to be making sure that the or checking whether the Queensland government is, is actually on track and the Victorian government is on track uh, for its targets. And even, even those targets won't be the end of it because even though New South Wales is a, is a do-nothing state uh, on the face of it, uh, it is in New South Wales that Liddell is closing and no, one's, no one is suggesting that, uh, other than John Barilano, who wants to build a <laughs> nuclear plant if he can't build a coal plant, uh, is suggesting that uh, uh, there'll be new coal to replace Liddell in New South Wales. It's clearly going to be these reciprocating gas engines and and uh, supported by some renewable energy when eventually the New South Wales government works out it's got to get Transgrid to build some more transmission to connect the stuff all up. Sorry. No, no, I just want to clarify that. So you're saying that those with those two targets, and that takes us to a 40% reduction in emissions in the electricity sector if those two actually deliver on what they promised to do? Well, together, yes, together with the amount of reduction that's already been achieved, you've got to remember that the closure of Hazelwood already, I mean, I estimate there's already been about a 12, 13, 14% reduction. Uh, and, and we know there's another 15 terawatt hours which uh, of renewable energy to come from all these new projects. Now, you know that total demand in the NEM is about 190 terawatt hours. Measured, that's measured from a consumption point of view. There's about 200 terawatt hours of production when you allow for line losses. And uh, normally you measure emissions intensity relative to production. But that 50% reduction in, 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 in Queensland um, uh, is about 15 or 20 million tonnes of carbon and there's about 9 million tonnes. I'm, I'm going to publish all these numbers and someone will point out where I've done my sums wrong. It's always... <laughs> the... but let's, let, let's say you've done your sums right, David. What it's telling me then is that we are already, with these state-based targets, way beyond what the federal government intends to achieve by 2030. So on what basis can they possibly argue that they, um, that, 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 that should, they should hold on to what are clearly very meagre emissions reduction targets? Well, you know, my argument would be that we, we have to see if the Queensland government, uh, these are not laws, at least they're not in Queensland, they're not international obligations. Uh, 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 and so there's less certainty about them. You know, if there was a change of government in Queensland, for instance, maybe they would change their target. There's a state election in Victoria. Uh, coming up, even though they've got legislation there, it can be undone. So yeah. I would argue that a federal target uh, is, is a, although we've seen federal targets undone as well. But mm. Mm. Important stuff. Matt, just swing over to you. I mean, what's your sort of view then of the sort of the, um, the politics of everything at the moment, particularly oh, look, around the it... NEG and the state versus the, the Labor states versus the, um, the, um, the Conservative feds, I guess is what it comes down to. Look, Giles, one of the interesting things that we've had, uh, you know, in terms of the, some of the people we've had on, on the, the VZE show um, has actually really been this uptake in uh, the, if you like, the rise of the conservative solar and storage advocate. Uh, I mean, it's, it's really interesting that, uh, especially in states like uh, Queensland, you basically had, uh, you know, the state, the, the Liberal government, they're advocating essentially more government-owned infrastructure, more centralised government-owned monopolies, and uh, 
and the, the real hard right, if you like, was saying, no, no, sod this, uh, get rid of the monopolies. Uh, we're going to take responsibility for ourselves and, and get government out of our life and, and go with solar and storage. So that's been a sort of an interesting political theme is that, that now there's sort of the wedging of the left and the right, that even the far right now uh, of politics are starting to really open their eyes up to sort of solar and storage. Well, you'd think that um, the hard right is actually attracted to this sort of idea of sort of going it alone or doing it yourself with um, with distributed generation, and um, I probably point to uh, we saw the same thing in the US actually with the with the um, the Green Tea, tea party, party. The Green Tea Party. <laughs> they're all they're all for solar and storage, and of course, um, our very own Corey Bernardi, of course, has put twelve kilowatts of solar on his house, and I think he's about to put um, battery storage on as well. Um, I'm not too sure what that makes of Malcolm Turnbull, who's got a lot of solar and a lot of storage in his Point Piper home. But um, anyway, we'll see where we get to that. Hey, look, let's get on to blockchain. Um, now, blockchain we talk um, an awful lot about. Um, this is new sort of digital um, digital wallet or digital accounting uh, measure. Look, maybe you can actually just sort of um, tell us a little about what digital your best description of what blockchain is and why it is so interesting to the um, energy, um, the energy industry, and um, I just referred some the listeners to to one of the stories last week, which was this announcement of the first microgrid in Australia that would use blockchain technology, and it would basically allow for two hundred dairy farms, one hundred homes, and a bunch of business, other businesses to install solar and battery storage and via blockchain be able to sort of sell energy to each other and store it on behalf of, of whatever. So they create this sort of virtual microgrid using blockchain technology. But take us right back to the beginning, Matt, and tell us what it is and why it's useful. Well, the, the, the starting point for me, Giles, was um, I sort of finished my Masters of Applied Finance and was looking around for something interesting to do in the energy space. And it happened to coincide with the rise of Bitcoin about a thousand percent, so that does sort of raise an eyebrow when that happens. Um, and I got really interested in this space and saw, you know, what I think is some of the potential and and some of the opportunities for the energy sector in in applying that technology. Uh, basically, for, for listeners out there, it is a bit complicated because it's not a traditional. It doesn't fit nicely into whether it's a security or a utility. It's there's a sort of grey area in between these two things. Um, and we covered, uh, you know, in, in the articles that the series of articles I've, I've written for you, Giles, um, covered three companies: Electrify Asia, WePower, and PowerLedger just looking at the different value streams that they might bring uh, you know, for a customer in terms of looking at that sort of generation value stream, which is about 25% of a bill, the retail value stream about 20%, and obviously the network cost, which is about 50%. So that's sort of the approach I had with it. But to take listeners right back to the sort of big picture here, these um, a lot of these blockchain uh, technologies are looking to use these sort of what we call utility tokens. So without going too deep into you know the, the crypto world, um, a utility token is is effectively where you're um, buying the output from something. So you don't have any underlying claim claim for the asset. Uh, so it's a bit like to to use an analogy, it's a bit like uh, you buy. Uh, with fiat money, you buy uh, tokens in a video arcade, like when you're growing up. 
um, and then you put those you know coins into a machine and you're effectively buying that that sort of utility if you like and but, yeah. but isn't the blockchain technology actually just breaking down into individual and easily identified transactions I mean I'm not too sure about I understand with the bitcoins you're using some sort of other sort of currency or whatever but the actual blockchain technology as it applies to energy as I understood it was just the ability to break down those individual transactions which which it seems to have been very hard to do because if anyone has ever looked at one of their energy bills it's almost impossible to decipher yeah so so the blockchain basically will allow you to uh, to account at very granular level for you know the sale and purchase of energy um, so you know for example one of the earlier applications is that you know uh, looking at sort of strata uh, situations where someone might have been able to put some solar on the roof and when unit one was out you could sell it to unit two and when unit two was out you could sell it to unit three and all of the accounting would be done for you so that's the sort of basis of it but it's been this uh, you know the, the application layers and the token economies that have raised you know sort of five six hundred million US dollars um, you know globally that have um, that have attracted a lot of people's attention lately they have, but the actual uh, economics of it, I mean, the, the money's been raised, but I would re, uh, classify it as a, a speculative money by and large. Uh, has anyone actually done much work on demonstrating the actual costs and benefits of using this technology in a real world application as opposed to fairly traditional um, uh, sort of ways like swiping a credit card or something like that? Uh Good question, David. I mean, this is what all these black blockchain platforms are sort of the problems that they're hoping to solve. Um, there's, there's, without getting too deep into the sort of blockchain world, the, these assets are broken into these sort of cryptocurrencies, which is like your Bitcoin and your Ethereum's. Um, then it's broken up into these utility tokens, and there's also some security tokens. But where there's been a lot of there's been a lot of regulatory uncertainty for, for good reason, um, and a lot of that centres around the idea that um, people are fundraising things. And if you like uh, to use a, that, that analogy, it's like you're trying to um, you're not allowed to raise money to build a video arcade. But once the video arcade is built, you can then sell tokens to it. It's there, there's some some grey areas there where where regulators are still scratching their heads on how they're yeah, going to deal with to, it. Yeah, I agree with there's some grey areas, and uh, no one wants to have over regulation. But I would uh, uh, say that people investing in cryptos and all these initial coin offerings, uh, which seem to me to be the very uh, frontier, Wild West frontier of sort of equity raising, ra raising cash, uh, are basically just speculating that uh, this is all going to turn out wonderfully well without any real hard evidence. So, so that that's the the issue you raise there, David, is exactly the reason that I sort of tried to really dive deeply to understand what the potential for these value streams were. Um, and so, so that that was the the purpose of the analysis is to work out, you know, what is its potential for addressing that generation value stream or that network value stream. And if you are able to do that on a mass scale, then it will attract value, and that those people obviously hope that those the value of those tokens would appreciate. So, if we take one of your examples, is it WePower? Is that how you yes. pronounce yep. it? Yes. Yep. Uh, you know, that's a, a bunch of software developers uh, from Eastern Europe and trying to develop like rooftop solar sales in Australia from one house to another or something. But have they actually got any real... Pro or I, I'm probably mischaracterising it. Their yes. website is so, yes. is so um, uh, undeveloped. 
it's very hard to see any real world examples there and they raised 30 million dollars or something like that yes yep yep so their their platform is more of a sort of a business to peer so they're looking at effectively crowdsourcing for example a large scale wind project so uh, it allows people to you know buy a little bit of the output associated with because there's going to be people who might perhaps have uh, inner city apartments something like that that can't put rooftop solar on um, who might still want to support specific renewable energy projects and so they might buy five or six thousand dollars worth of output of a large wind farm which would be the equivalent to their you know five or six thousand dollars they might spend on a PV uh, so, so, so this should be something that like the AMP and the financial planning industry should have been advising on rather than what they've actually <laughs> been advising on. <laughs> that's right. I mean, there's a lot of interesting risk associated with it, David, and that's part of, uh, you know, for traditional finance people, it is quite difficult to sort of wrap your head around. I mean, effectively, you're investing in output, so you have no underlying claim to the asset. You simply are investing in output, and that's something that uh, is Difficult, you know, I, I come from this from a, like you, a traditional finance background and I was scratching my head thinking, you know, there's, there's no, you don't have any claim. The debt holders go first, the equity holders go second. Where does this, uh, this new uh, sort of product fit into the market? But obviously, you know, these platforms are taking, you know, the bet that these, the, the IRRs on these projects are quite big, uh, that there will be some sort of customer demand, customer demand for them. So going back to this um, this example of the Trove Valley with the dairy farmers and the um, and the households and things like that, and they're talking about like sixteen megawatt um, virtual microgrid, are they doing something then with this technology, blockchain technology? And that's been done through a company called Lo3 Energy, which um, did this so-called uh, Brooklyn microgrid. Um, are they doing something with blockchain that they couldn't do otherwise? Uh, look, it's, uh, to be honest with you, Giles, we didn't cover LO3. I didn't cover LO3 in the analysis. So I, I'll speak more generally about the network value stream that, that I think they're trying to target. I mean, what they're basically doing is they're, if we think of it like uh, the big promise for a network value stream, basically, is the ability to use price signals in those distributed locations to address some network constraints and effectively use software and data instead of capex and you know we've seen this evolution happen before with telcos and this is the sort of play that a lot of these um, companies that are trying to target that uh, that that network mm. value stream are, are trying to seek to, to address so what might be in it for the consumer then presumably the fact that they can trade solar energy and they can sort of share it with their neighbors or the local business or something like that means that in principle they get better better value for their exports they get might get more, more visibility on their bills and presumably they can do something that they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise and hopefully reduce their overall costs of electricity well i don't see how they'll get better visibility on their bills uh, necessarily and i mean it's already possible to do micro transactions scaled using PayPal, for instance, some traditional credit card, which I've, I've always found very useful if I just want to send some money to my neighbor or something, not that I ever do, and I'm nothing against the neighbors, but... Um, there is a post box. Uh, there is a post, and I'm just trying to understand, you know, the costs of actually running a, a, a blockchain haven't, I don't think, been all that well articulated, have they? Um, um, because there are so few practical examples. 
Look, there's, there's no doubt at all, David, that we're in the sort of the very, very early stages of this. And if you think about the sort of data that you're going to need to manage here, I mean, you could look at, uh, I think at the moment, we they collect data every sort of 15 minutes uh, and maybe shoot that off to a network once or twice a day. And the sort of data that you're going to need to be able to really manage some of these grids dynamically in real time is going to be magnitudes of 100 to 200 times more data than they're currently managing. And they're really probably, you could argue, struggling with the data they've got. So there's no doubt that scalability is is, is an issue uh, here. But certainly that the big picture is, you know, the ability for uh, over time and, you know, you guys, uh, Giles, you address this on the website every day, you know, this idea around the changing of these tariff structures and how this is all going to work. Um, the idea that the technology enables you to put in specific tariff structures that will encourage generation to be sat next to where it's used. I mean, if you look at the moment, uh, I mean, the, the, the analogy I use in, in the series of articles for you, Giles, is that, that you know, it's, it's like having a flat trip of $70 around Melbourne for all Uber trips. I mean, it, it's quite sort of ridiculous that you would pay the same network rate to trade with your neighbour as you would to use all of that transmission infrastructure between, you know, Melbourne and the Latrobe Valley. So that, 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 that model of how they... Uh, charge customers is going to come under pressure from regulators because once you can start dotting generation and control and, and you start to decentralize the risk associated with uh, you know how networks manage manage things then then you know you can it's possible to then shift some of that value back to consumers so I, I keep coming back to you know as I understand a blockchain <laughs> and I don't uh, <laughs> Uh, it's a distributed ledger, and ledger's a familiar term to me. I used to teach accounting at university, so I, I, I do think I know what a ledger is. And it's distributed, which means that uh, is there more than one copy of the ledger held in, in, in these cases? So, so you, you're getting into some of the technical detail, David, that to be honest, I didn't cover. I was look, I focus very much on the sort of value streams, but what I know is that there's lots of different types of, of ledgers if you like um, and some of them can be uh, what they call private blockchains some of them can be public blockchains um, and and that's really all I think I, I would would be able to knowledgeably uh, contribute to that to be honest with you so who should who should be getting excited about this the the, the consumer the retailers the no, network no. operators or or no, anyone Charles the people that get excited about it are the people sponsoring these blockchain and initial coin offerings they are making absolute fortunes mm. in real money out of all of these offerings that are coming up uh, and 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 without actually so far having put any real life product examples on the table Yes, well, look, I'm not really getting excited about this sort of, you know, this sort of boom and bust on the markets, which we've seen in the um, in some of those Bitcoin stocks. Um, I'm just sort of kind of interested, um, will it ever um, get applied? I mean, does it have a general application for the energy industry? And um, I'm not too sure yet if I actually got the answer. Well, you, you, you write about it fairly regularly, Giles, you know, this issue to do with grid defection. Um, which is, is something that, you know, networks are going to face and they're going to increasingly fa face in those areas, you know, like Queensland and, and Western Australia, where they've got good sunshine. Um, and, you know, the idea of being able to maximise the, the value of a network, as, you know, 
this technological disruption occurs is something that you know maybe isn't ready for mainstream adoption yet but you know these these networks that want to preserve their shareholders value as these this transition occurs are going to need to look at some of this yeah. stuff well the only way they're going to be able to do that is actually lower their costs because um, that's the technology that's facing them which is basically the solar and the storage and the and the software that goes with it and and, and the smart so um, if they can if blockchain can provide that um, that distributed ledger and that um, software to be able to enable these transactions and lower their costs and then keep people on the grid, then then that's great. But if they don't lower the cost, then I, I can't see, well, who knows how many people would ever quit the grid, but I can see a lot of people leaving if they, um, if they don't get lower costs. And in yeah. fact, we saw, just speaking on quitting the grid, uh, we, we actually saw Aubrey Zeebelman uh, sort of getting excited about grid defection here in Australia as well. And, uh, you know, this brings me to another topic that's, I think, gaining uh, a lot of credence or momentum, and that's these corporate PPAs. Another story uh, you were running this week, Giles, is about another bank, Westpac, looking for quite a large amount of... Uh, Wind and uh, solar, yes. That's right. Uh, so maybe they'll need a blockchain. I mean, if... Uh... <laughs> Well, look, it's funny. It's funny you sort of bring that up, uh, David, because it, the thing, one of the things that that one of the other things that I think blockchain addresses in the, the sort of retailing space, which I think is quite interesting, and and you know potentially might get someone like you a bit excited about the technology, is the issues around you know what it does in terms of working capital. I mean, the idea that you can collect money effectively at the time you use the energy. Um, I think actually opens up a lot of opportunity for you know neo retailers, um, you know whether they be you know your Telstra's or your Lend Leases or whoever it happens to be. That if they can do, if they can collect their money at the time the energy is used, rather than waiting 90 days plus another 14 for payment, then that can really sort of supercharge um, the, the business models of, of some of the people who are looking to you know to better manage the productivity of a, of a retail energy offering. I've learned through bitter experience not to be too cynical about uh, new technologies and I'm sure blockchain, the very um, increasing ubiquity of blockchain and the fact that it's uh, more and more people are looking at it means it has a very long future in front of it. I just think we're at the very beginning and people need to be careful. But Giles, I guess we're uh, getting to the end of our uh, allotted uh, time span. Our allotted time, absolutely, yes. So um, the coming week, um, David... Yes. Have you got anything on your? Have you got anything on your calendar? I've got things on my calendar, but I'm not talking to you about them. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got something on the calendar. Then the Carbon Markets Institute is speaking, uh, having its conference at the MCG um, this week, so that could be interesting. I think we're seeing an appearance there from Josh Frydenberg and even Penny Wong. She, the architect of the CPRS. Maybe talking about the Paris Climate Treaty. And I think um, early next week, we've got Energy Week down in Melbourne, which will also be interesting. Um, and, um, and, um, and then budgets. We've got, well, we've got a Victorian budget this week, and we've got the federal budget next week. It'll be interesting to see what, if anything, comes out of those in terms of um, allocation to various institutions and, um, and, and grant funding. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So one of the things that Frydenberg hasn't actually answered yet, and um, I should answer, is um, where that money is coming from or when it's coming for the uh, solar thermal project in Port Augusta. They're supposed to cop up $100 million under the agreement reached with um, former Senator Nick Xenophon, so it might be worth trying to catch up on that as well. Yes, that's another project we should definitely keep our, our eye on. As you know, we, I'm 
we are keeping an eye on solar thermal, which I, I've, I'm always uh, like to look at the numbers. But look, that's a, that's a, we've run out yeah, of time. I'll, give, I'll give a plug to BZE there, Giles, because they uh, they were one of the people that did the early some of the early pioneering modelling work. So a credit to the the, the the former BZE people. Some of them are still there, but they they really started and helped uh, push along that uh, repower Port Augusta program. And who could um, who could forget the fact that um, one certain Malcolm Turnbull um, um, actually turned up at the uh, launch of the BZD 100% renewables by 2030 campaign and um, spoke um, spoke finally of the transition to clean energy and I'm not too sure what happened since then. Well, I do think I know what happened since then, but um, anyway, um, it's just worth reminding people. Hey, Matt, look, thanks very much for joining us and giving us a bit of a rundown about the blockchain technology and um, some of the things. So, well, um, hope, hopefully the, the, the readers uh, enjoy those uh, three articles I've put together this week for you, Giles. Good stuff. And David, thanks very much for joining us again, as usual. And thanks for running the podcast and thanks to our sponsors and uh, hope all our listeners have a great week. Indeed, our sponsors Solaray Energy and What Watchers, and thank you very much for listening. Do leave a review on your favourite platform and tell your friends, and we'll be back again next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Solaray Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage, and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Wattwatchers, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs, accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit wattwatchers.com.au and take control of your energy use.